our standing before God apart from Christ is no different than that of a terrorist, a mass murderer, or Hitler himself. We are guilty with no defense. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you ever been silenced in the presence of God? Have you given up on self-justification? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of a series titled Your Day in Court. Last time we discovered the first element of God's verdict against total depravity, and that is you're responsible before God's law. But there's a second element to God's verdict, and today you'll be reminded that if you are not in Christ, God will find you guilty without defense. The only true Christians are those who no longer offer any defense of their sin, but have accepted full responsibility. Do you accept that you no longer have a defense? Let's join Tom for more now on The Word Unleashed. We finish the first section, the first major section of Paul's letter to the Romans. We finish the bad news. It's important to understand, however, that the bad news is part of the good news. When Paul went to explain the gospel to the churches in Rome, he spent two and a half chapters explaining the bad news. He spends a chapter and a half explaining the good news. The reason for that is you don't really understand your need for the good news until you get a grasp on your true situation, where you really stand before God. And so this morning, we finish that section that we started back in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul has laid out for us the universal guilt of mankind. It concludes in a magnificent paragraph that we've been studying together, chapter 3, verse 9, down through verse 20. Let's read it again together. You follow along. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This paragraph is charged with legal language. It is the language of the courtroom. In fact, in verse 9, Paul lays out his formal indictment of human depravity. 
He says, I have charged in the first couple of chapters of this letter, I have charged that all men without exception are under sin. I have labeled, leveled an indictment against them. In verses 10 through 18, he then presents the biblical evidence. Having, having given the indictment, he presents his evidence. Notice verse 10 begins, as it is written. And then in staccato-like fashion, Paul lays out seven Old Testament texts joined together to form a seamless whole that convicts all of humanity of being guilty before God. In verses 19 and 20 that we began to study last week, he comes to the legal implications of all of this. In light of the indictment, in light of the biblical evidence, where does that leave us? What are the ramifications to us with reference to the law of God, with reference to God himself? In verses 19 and 20, we find the legal implications of human depravity. Now, as I noted for you last time, in these two verses, Paul takes us forward to the day of judgment. And he shows each one of us how our day in court, how our day at the final judgment would go if it were not for Jesus Christ and what he had accomplished, what he accomplished in his life and death. I said last week, I'll say it again as we begin this morning, if you have never repented of your sins, if you have never confessed Jesus as your Lord, these two verses describe exactly the verdict that you will hear individually, personally, when you stand before God, your creator, someday. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this passage is equally important for you, however, because Paul wrote these words to the Christians in the churches in Rome. You see, we, we only fully understand what God has done for us when we come to grasp our situation without Christ. When we understand how it really would go for us at the judgment if it had not been for the intervention of Jesus Christ. We don't worship him as we ought to worship him. We don't love and serve and follow him as we ought to love and serve and follow him to the degree that we should. If you're a follower of Christ, you do those things. But not to the degree we should if we don't grasp the fullness of our circumstance apart from the work of Jesus Christ. So I asked you last week, and I'll ask you again this morning, if you're a Christian, for the next few minutes, I want you to forget that reality. And I want, it to, I want it to sink deep into your soul that if you were to stand before God apart from his grace, this would have been his verdict on your life. His verdict contains five elements, five separate legal decisions. Together, those five legal decisions summarize God's final verdict on every single one of us apart from Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we discovered the first element of God's verdict, and that is we are responsible before God's law. Notice how verse 19 begins. Now, we know, that's how Paul starts when he expects that his readers will agree with him. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, who are those under the law? 
We noted last week that when you look at the first two chapters of Romans, you get two different groups. First of all, there are those who have access to the written revelation of God. In the first century, that was primarily the Jews. They are under the law. They have God's law in writing. They are therefore under the law. In addition to that, however, Paul has argued in the first two chapters that every human being, whether he has God's written revelation or not, still has the work of the law written in his heart. The result of that is that every human being has enough knowledge of God's law to render him completely responsible for keeping God's law. That's the point Paul is making. All humanity is under the law, some under the written law, but everyone else under the work of the law written on the heart. I mean, think about yourself for a moment. How many Bibles do you have or have access to? How many sermons have you listened to? How many verses could you recall from memory just because you've sort of caught them by osmosis if you haven't memorized them intentionally. Think about how often your conscience has confronted you either before you were about to commit some sin or after you had. Put it all together, and what Paul wants us to understand is that at the judgment, not one person will be able to claim ignorance. Not one person will be able to claim exemption from keeping the law of God. We are all responsible before God's law. That is the first element in God's verdict, and that's foundational. The first thing God would say about you at the judgment, if you go there without Christ, what he will say about you is you were responsible. You knew, and you still made the choices that you made. Now, there's a second element to God's verdict at the judgment. If we're not in Christ at the judgment, God will find, secondly, that we are guilty with no defense. We are guilty with no defense. Look again at verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. So that obviously speaks of purpose. Paul is saying that God made every man responsible before his law in order to accomplish two very specific purposes. The first purpose is so that every mouth may be closed. The verb translated may be closed simply means to be shut, to be silenced. These are potent words. The picture is a, is a vivid and powerful one. It pictures a defendant in court who has listened as the charges have been read. He's listened as the evidence has been presented. And then comes his time to speak in his own defense. And he finds himself completely speechless because of the sheer weight of the evidence that has been presented. He has nothing to say. And so without saying a single word, he simply stands and waits for the condemnation and the sentence. 
The law has been explained. The defendant has been accused of violating the law. The evidence has been presented. The judge has found the defendant guilty as charged. And the defendant concludes when given the chance to defend himself, there is simply nothing I can say in my own defense. Paul says one great purpose of the law is that it serves to remove all self-defense. Think about that. Think about how different God's courtroom is from our own legal system. One author puts it this way. He says, we are tried by our peers who frequently excuse bad behavior. Juries can be tampered with. Judges can be bribed or simply make mistakes. Human law is inexact and imperfect. There are often loopholes and technicalities. We can plead extenuating circumstances. We appeal to a higher court and another beyond that. Even if we are still found guilty, we can continue our efforts at self-vindication. We can carry on our legal battle from the prison law library. We can write letters. We can write a book and sell the television rights to our story. We can maintain our innocence with our family, friends, and fellow prisoners. We can refuse to be silenced. Defendants here seem to just keep on talking. But before God, every mouth will be silenced. In fact, let me, let me put it to you this way. The only true Christians are those who have already shut up. Who no longer offer any defense of their sin, but have accepted full responsibility. They know there's no defense. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, have you stopped speaking? Have you been silenced in the presence of God? Have you given up self-justification? Have you given up arguing against this verdict of the great apostle? Or are you saying, but surely after all I've done, this good and that, I'm not as bad as that. If you're saying that, you have missed the scripture because the effect of this scripture is to silence, to stop every mouth. You are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It is that you stop talking. Notice Paul says in verse 19, every mouth Without the grace of God, this is the end of every human being. But you know, the believer has already come to this place, as I said. The believer has already, as it were, put his hand over his mouth and accepted full responsibility. If you're a believer, you're like David in Psalm 51, who said, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified, God, when you speak, and you're blameless when you judge. In other words, David's saying, God, whatever you decide to do to me, I deserve it and worse. Have you ever said that to God? True Christians say that. They understand their true guilt. My wife and I, when our children were younger, we taught them the children's catechism. I recommend it to you. It's a great way to expose them to Christian doctrine in an early age. And, and they get so much of it. If you've been around our church any time at all, you've probably heard me tell my favorite story from those catechism days. One day, Sheila and one of our daughters, who will remain nameless to protect the guilty, were, were at the grocery store. This is in Los Angeles. 
This daughter was struggling to obey and, frankly, desperately failing. And when they got to the cash register, she saw it. There it was, all the candy, beautifully portrayed at eye level for the kids to see. You parents know about this. It's like she had died and gone to Disneyland. You know, it's, it's all there. And so she began to plead with my wife to have a treat. You've probably experienced that. Now, you've got to picture the scene. They're standing in a long line. There are always long lines in L.A. There's just so many people. And there are long lines in every other cash register line. And they're in a crowded L.A. supermarket with dozens of people with an earshot. And so Sheila said to her, sweetheart, you don't deserve a treat based on how you have misbehaved today in the store. In a very loud voice, my daughter responded, I know, Mommy, all I deserve is the wrath and curse of God. (laughs) She got it. She understood. That is exactly the purpose of God's law. It is to remind us that we are guilty, that we have no legitimate defense, that we, that you, that I deserve the wrath, the just anger, and the curse, the eternal curse on our souls of God. That's what we deserve. This passage reminds us that our primary problem is not our circumstances. It's not even ourselves and our own internal struggle with sin. Our greatest problem is our status before God. Paul has primarily been arguing in these chapters that we stand under the verdict of guilty in the courtroom of God, our creator. This is our problem. It's not primarily our internal condition, as bad as that is, although the gospel has a remedy for that as well. But our real issue is our standing before God. That's, by the way, why we should never present the gospel as a fix for man's problems. Don't say, you need to trust Jesus because he'll fix your marriage and he'll make you more successful in your business. He may or may not do those things. Obviously, if you obey him, it will help your marriage be a better marriage. But The real issue in the gospel is not any of that. It's how to be reconciled with God. Man's greatest problem is he's guilty before his creator. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul and following, Paul tells us we are ambassadors for Christ with one message, be reconciled to God. That's what the gospel calls for. The verdict is in. We have been declared guilty, and there's not a single thing we can say in our defense. And stay with me here. If we are guilty, then God can never declare us in and of ourselves to be righteous, because we're guilty. We desperately need the righteousness of another, an alien righteousness to us, a righteousness that comes from God to us, which is the gospel. However, men may appear to us, and, and we all have this sliding scale, right? You think about your coworkers, your neighbors who are unbelievers, and about some of them you say, you know, he's a pretty good guy. She's really, she's a good person. And then there are others you say, well, maybe not. We have this sort of scale. However men may appear to us, they all appear equally guilty and without defense before God. 
While the kind and degree of their sin may be different, and our own sin may be different, our standing before God, apart from Christ, is no different than that of a terrorist, a mass murderer, or Hitler himself. We are guilty with no defense. The third decision in God's verdict is that we abide under God's wrath, under his just anger. Look at verse 19 again. So that all the world may become accountable to God. Paul's already made the point that one purpose for the law is so that every mouth may be closed. Now he adds a second purpose for the law so that all the world may become accountable. You can see in the context here, all the world is parallel to every mouth. So we're talking about every person without exception. But the Greek word accountable is a very unusual word. In fact, it's only found here in the New Testament. It is, it is definitely a legal word, as you would expect in this paragraph. It's a forensic word. It describes someone, listen carefully, who has already lost his case in court. His case has already been heard. He lost. In addition, there is no possibility of him disproving the charge against him. He is therefore currently liable to punishment. That's really what the word means, liable to punishment. Now, specifically, Paul says we are accountable to God. That's pretty remarkable because the Greek word accountable in secular contexts was usually followed by the name of one of two people, either the one against whom the crime had been committed you were legally liable to punishment because of that person or the name of the judge before whom you appeared. In this case, God is both. He's the offended party and he's the judge. The picture here is of someone standing before the bar of God. His guilt has already been proven beyond all doubt and his sentence has been established. All that's left is the execution of the sentence. It's a very hard word to translate into English. And they chose the word accountable, which is okay, but it implies, it implies you know, lack of certainty. Like maybe he'll be found guilty, maybe he won't. He's accountable to the law. That's not the idea behind this word. There's certainty behind this word. I think maybe the best modern equivalent to this Greek word is this. In God's sight... The entire world is currently living on death row, having exhausted every possible appeal. That's the idea of this accountable. On death row with no appeals left. This is man's condition. This is my condition without Christ. It's your condition without Christ. Turn over to John chapter 3. Most famous verse in the Bible, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son the first time into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be rescued, might be saved through him. That's why he came. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who, watch this now, verse 18, he who does not believe in Jesus Christ has been judged already 
in one sense, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Verse 20, they didn't want their deeds exposed. Their choice has judged them, has made it evident who they really are. Look down at verse 36. Here's the summary. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He has as his current possession the life from above, the, the, the life that not only lasts forever, but life of a different kind, life from above, the life of God himself. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now watch this, the end of verse 36. But the wrath, the just anger of God, literally, present tense, is constantly abiding on him. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, Your Day in Court. Tom will have part four for us on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.